What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thanks for listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast this year. We're already launching our first events of 2017. And for our listeners who have loved ones living in or around London, you can buy them the gift of our events and debates with the Intelligence Squared gift card, which can be used for any of our events coming up next year. The Intelligence Squared gift card is available on our website, intelligencesquared.com. Now, here's this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Thank you very much. Thank you, Hannah. Um, welcome, Tim. I'm Kamal Ahmed. I'm the economics editor of the BBC, but economist A, who needs them? Um, uh, we're here today to talk uh, about a fabulous book, Messy, which uh, Hannah has mentioned. I'm a little bit worried that um, Tim will be a bit irritated at the way I prepared for this. Um, I carefully read his very neat book. I have carefully annotated the pages I think I might ask him about. And I've made um, careful preparations for this whole event in a very neat, tidy and slightly anal way that I have in my life. I get slightly cross if the chairs around my living table are a little bit skew-whiff. So Tim and I are going to join together tonight and see the joys of uh, Messi. I just noted down a few bullet points that I'm going to ask Tim about, which might give you some sense of the breadth of uh, this work, which builds on much of Tim's earlier work as well. These are the bullet points that I have written down. Politics, uh, business, automation, algorithms, improvisation, architecture, and life. So, Tim, small areas to debate, but you're going to give us a few words first to try and organise our minds, although that might actually be slightly the wrong way to look at it. Tim. Thank you. I can see what you did there. (laughs) Kamal, one thing you didn't mention was jazz, and I feel we at least need to talk about that briefly. And I want to take you all back to uh, a, a jazz concert that was about to happen in late January 1975. And the location of this concert was the Cologne Opera House, which is an absolutely enormous venue. This room, when it's completely full, seats 700 people. The Cologne Opera House seats 1,400. So it's it's a huge auditorium. And the moment I'm thinking of, the moment when this concert starts to be imperiled, is when a 17-year-old German girl walks onto the stage of, of the Cologne Opera House. It's completely empty. 
It's lit by the dim green glow of the emergency exit signs. Her name is Vera Branders. She is the youngest concert promoter in Germany. She just loves jazz. And she's been trying to get more jazz musicians to come to Cologne. And almost immediately, she has scored a mega hit. She has persuaded the Cologne Opera House to host a late-night concert of improvised jazz from the American pianist Keith Jarrett. So why is she walking out onto an, a, an empty stage in front of an empty auditorium? Because she's introducing Jarrett to the piano. In just a few hours, he will sit down at that piano without any rehearsal or sheet music. He's going to begin to play. So she introduces him to the piano. And Jarrett instantly looks suspicious. He plays a couple of notes. He paces around the piano. He plays a couple more notes. He turns to his producer. They start muttering in a huddle. You can imagine now Vera's pulse is starting to race. And then Keith Jarrett's producer comes over to Vera and says to this teenager, if you can't get a new piano, Keith won't play. There'd been a mistake. The team at the Cologne Opera House had brought up a rehearsal piano. So it was, the felt was worn away in the upper registers. So it, they sounded tinny and harsh. It was out of tune. The black notes were sticking. The pedals didn't work. And it was too small. It just wouldn't generate enough volume to fill the opera house. Branders later said, yeah, it was like, it was a tiny piano. It was like half a piano. So, of course, what you would do is, well, call the opera house staff and get a proper grand piano in. The trouble is, it's Friday afternoon in Germany. Everyone's gone home. There is no one to call. So Jarrett leaves. He says the, the piano's unplayable. He leaves. Vera Brandes jumps on the phone. She tries to get a replacement. It quickly becomes apparent there will be no replacement piano. She can get a piano tuner. She can smooth out a few of the rough edges. But basically, it's going to be a bad piano. And there are 1,400 people coming to hear Keith Jarrett play. And he's not playing. So Vera Brandes does the one thing that she can think of to do. She goes outside... She looks for Jarrett. He's sitting in his car. It's raining. She goes up to him. She stands there in the rain, and she begs him. She begs him to play. And he looks out through the rain-drenched windshield. He, he looks at this bedraggled German teenager, winds down the window. He says, never forget, only for you. And so a few hours later... In front of a packed auditorium, Keith Jarrett walks out on the stage, sits down at the unplayable piano, and he begins. And within a few moments, it becomes apparent something magical is happening. So Jarrett's avoiding the harsh, tinny upper registers. He's sticking to the middle tones, which gives the piece a rather soothing and ambient quality. But it doesn't become this new age kind of zone-out music because the piano's too quiet. So, so Jarrett has to give it some volume. And he sets up these rolling, rumbling riffs in the bass to try to generate some resonance and fill the hall. The other thing he does is to stand up. 
and to pound down on the keys, moaning and just trying to hit the piano hard enough so that people at the back can hear. And that the tension between the energy with which Jarrett is, is playing the piano and the soothing notes that he's using gives this piece a very magical quality. It, I mean, it, it, my, I have three children. Two of them were born while my wife was listening to Keith Jarrett's Cone concert. She now has mixed feelings about it, I have to say. <laughs> but the rest of us don't. It's, I mean, it's, it is magical, and it is the most successful piano concert in history. And you might ask, why was it even recorded if it was going to be so bad? It was recorded because Jarrett and his producer wanted a documentary record of what a musical catastrophe sounds like. <laughs> so I want you to think about Jarrett's initial reaction. He didn't think when he met the unplayable piano, ah, excellent, crap piano, this will really be an opportunity to exercise my creative freedom. He thought, Crap piano, crap concert. I don't want any part of it. Of course he thought that. Even an adventurous musician like Jarrett thought that. And I think the rest of us, when we're in a remotely comparable situation, when we're asked to do good work with tools that are breaking in our hands or awkward people or impossible deadlines or distracting circumstances, we think this is no way to get the best out of me. Jarrett was wrong. And I think we're often wrong. Often these frustrating circumstances are a great way to get the best out of us. So let me briefly, before Kamal bothers me with his tidy, tidy questions, let <laughs> me briefly explain why I think that might be. And I'll give you a few different perspectives from, from cognitive psychology, from social psychology, from complexity science, and lastly, and most importantly, from rock and roll. So cognitive psychology. Cognitive psychologists have known for a while that if you put small obstacles in people's way, they will sometimes overcompensate. The, the idea is it's called desirable difficulties. So there are lots of little studies of this, lots and lots of them. My favorite one was conducted by a team led by a psychologist called Daniel Oppenheimer. What Oppenheimer's team did was to team up with high school teachers to run a randomized controlled trial. So imagine you're all in, in one set of classes for these teachers, you're all in another set of classes for these teachers. You will get your handouts formatted in you know, something sensible like Ariel or Times New Roman. You, on the other hand, get your handouts formatted in Hattenschweiler, very German font, Hattenschweiler, or maybe monotype cursiva, which is script-like, or maybe, just maybe, the zesty bounce of Comic Sans italicized. Now, you would think it, is, it can't possibly be advantageous to have your handouts formatted in Hattenschweiler. Wrong. When these students did their end-of-term exams, the ones who had been given the difficult handouts with the difficult fonts scored better than the ones who'd been given the straightforward handouts with the easy fonts. And the theory is, you guys, you get your handout in Arial or in Times New Roman, it seems so straightforward, you kind of feel like you've already read it. You just skim over, yeah, that's fine, I got it. You guys, on the other hand, you see Hattenschweiler and you think, what is this? And so you start to pay attention. It slows you down. You're interpreting more, you're thinking more. And so you get more out of the handout because it's more difficult. Well, you might say, well, that's just psychology. Who, who trusts anything out of psychology these days? So let me instead 
give you a perspective from complexity science. So imagine you're trying to solve an incredibly complex problem. There are lots of them out there, scheduling problems, packing problems, how do we fit the components on silicon chips, how do we, how do we schedule deliveries around, uh, around a, a network, there are lots and lots of problems like this. And computer scientists have figured out how to solve them. Basically, you get a computer to, to run an algorithm a kind of recipe for churning through different combinations and testing out different possibilities. Now, you can't test all the combinations because there are just too many. So one way of trying to solve this problem is to look for step-by-step -step improvements. So we'll, we'll try this way of organizing the computer chip, and then we'll swap a couple of components. Does that improve things? If so, keep that. Swap a couple more chips. Does that improve things? If so, keep that. Swap another couple of components. Does that improve things? OK, just keep going, looking for step-by-step -step improvements. That's fine. That'll help. But you will hit a dead end. This is the way you solve complex problems. You will hit a dead end. All of these algorithms that go for step-by-step -step improvements, they run down some blind alley, and then they can't get out of the blind alley because they're looking for improvements. And so computer scientists have, have figured out how to solve this problem. Lots and lots of different approaches. They all have one thing in common. They all involve adding random shocks. Just give the algorithm a, a nudge sideways and get it looking for step-by-step -step improvements somewhere else. Now, the, you might say, this all sounds rather abstract. Did anybody come here on the London Underground? Anyone? You poor, poor people. <laughs> Actually, the ones who drove, I sympathize even more. Well, people who use the London Underground, you know, you kind of optimize your route, don't you? You've got it all planned out. You, you, especially if you're a commuter, you know where to stand on the platform. This is where the doors open. And if I, if I get in this carriage, then when the train changes at Oxford Circus, then I can skip across and I can get to the Victoria Line. And you promised yourself you would never become that person when you moved to London, but you did become that person, didn't you? You know where to stand. You would think, surely, nobody has their route to work optimized like a regular commuter. And then again, given what we just learned about the algorithms, maybe a random shock would improve things. But how could one inflict a random shock on the London Underground? Turns out there are some ladies and gentlemen who work for the trade unions who are very happy to do that. <laughs> and there was, a, there was a strike about three years ago, 48-hour strike, closed down two-thirds of London Underground stations. Um, but other stations were still open, as were the buses, as were the overground trains. And three economists got hold of the data from the Oyster cards, and they said, we are going to identify commuters, people who take the same route every day from this data. We're going to identify commuters who change routes on the strike days, and then we're going to ask a simple question. Do they change back? And the answer is, of course, most of them change back, and of course, most of them did, you know, didn't enjoy the strike. Tens of thousands stuck with the new route. Tens of thousands of commuters discovered they had been doing it wrong their entire lives. <laughs> and only the random shock forced them to look for an alternative. And then they discovered that the alternative was actually better. And if, if it can happen to a commuter, I think it can happen to any of us in almost anything that we do. That shock lets us solve problems in a different way. Of course... There is nothing more disruptive than working with other people, as Kamal is probably finding already this evening. 
And there's a wonderful study done by Catherine Phillips, social psychologist, of problem solving in groups. Lots of studies of this, but I love Catherine Phillips' version. She asked uh, groups of four people to solve a kind of murder mystery problem. They were given dossiers with information. They were, uh, here's the alibis, here are the witness statements, here's what the police think, photos of the crime scene. Here are three people. Which of the three people committed the crime? So if you ask four friends to try and solve this problem, they have about a 50-50 success rate. It's quite a hard problem. I mean, chimpanzees have a 33% success rate because it's multiple choice. <laughs> four, four friends, 50% success rate. That was, but in a randomized trial, she also asked three friends and a stranger to try to solve the problem. And when she asked three friends and a stranger, remember, the stranger's got no extra information. The, stranger, the only thing about the stranger is it's kind of awkward when you're there with your three friends and this stranger suddenly shows up. The three friends and the stranger not only did better, they did enormously better. They had a 75% success rate. But what's really interesting, people were in total denial that this was true. So when Catherine Phillips interviewed them, the groups of four friends had a great time, not surprising. They also thought they'd solve the problem. When she interviewed the groups of three friends and the stranger, they had an awkward time. Of course, the whole thing was guaranteed, it was calculated to produce awkwardness. But not only did they not enjoy themselves, they thought they had done badly. So this is a group of people, objectively, far more successful subjectively, they think they're doing worse. And you can just imagine what that means for the way we react to diversity in all sorts of groups. You've got the awkward stranger in the room with you, you think that they are just getting in the way, and you don't realize they're actually helping you. And that's why the final perspective is so important, because I've been talking about all these, all these disruptions that help us solve problems, but of course... None of them are things we embrace. We don't reformat our Kindles into Hattenschweiler. We don't jump for joy when a tube strike is announced. Uh, we don't habitually reach out to awkward strangers. This is not how we behave. So the, the rock and roll perspective is important here. When I was working on the book, one of the people I really wanted to speak to was a musician. And I didn't think I'd be able to persuade him to talk to me, but actually he was very, very willing because he finds randomness fascinating. His name is Brian Eno. Half of you are now going, who's Brian Eno? The other half are going, whoa, Brian Eno, it's amazing. <laughs> so Brian Eno is a very important figure in British music, but he's often in the background. He's this sort of zephyr of cerebral chaos blowing backwards and forwards across the frontal lobes of pop. He's, and he worked for Roxy Music. Yeah, he, 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 he played the keyboards for Roxy Music with a big plastic knife and fork dressed as a wizard, but who didn't in those days? <laughs> He created Another Green World, which is the album that Prince said, that's the best album I've ever heard. He created ambient music. But he's most famous for working with other musicians. Coldplay, U2, a gentleman called David Bowie. You may have heard of him. Eno and Bowie worked together on three of Bowie's greatest albums, the Berlin Trilogy, Low, Heroes and Lodger. But why do all of these great musicians want to work with Brian Eno? It is because Brian Eno is the awkward stranger. It's because Brian Eno forces them to try to play the unplayable piano. He's the ugly font. He messes with them, and they know he's going to mess with them. And one of his favorite tools for messing with them is a deck of cards, which he calls the oblique strategies. And when everyone's stuck in the studio, he will just shuffle the cards, and he'll, he'll pull one out, and he will inflict its instructions on the musicians. So this one is change instrument roles. 
You've got one of the greatest guitarists in the world. You've got one of the greatest drummers in the world. But sadly, the guitarist is on the drums and the drummer is on the guitar. It's the kind of thing Eno would do. In total darkness or in a very large room, very quietly. Now, I don't know either. But this is what he would do to people. Make a sudden, destructive, unpredictable action. Incorporate. You see, the thing is, when it's on the cards, you kind of have to do it even though you hate it. And they did hate it. They really hated it. Phil Collins played the drums on Another Green World. He was so angry, he was throwing beer cans across the studio in frustration. Carlos Alomar, great guitarist, played on the Berlin Trilogy. He would say, Brian, Brian, this experiment is stupid. This music sounds terrible. But you can't argue with the results. And in the end... The musicians came round. Sometimes it took 20 years. Sometimes it took 40 years. <laughs> Carlos Alomar uh, spoke to uh, documentary makers uh, about David Bowie and um, he has this lovely line about the cards. He said, they took me to a new place. And to be honest, I didn't like that place. <laughs> but then when I came back, I was fresh. So maybe there is something in them. And Carlos Alomar teaches guitar, and he gets his students to use the oblique strategies because he's realized something. Just because you don't like it, just because it makes you anxious, doesn't mean it isn't helping you. These cards were originally not a, card, not a deck of cards at all. They were just a list on the wall of the studio. But that didn't work at all. Far too tidy, your bullet points you know, would just go down the list, he'd pick whatever was fitting in with his plans anyway, whatever was least disruptive, and he'd do that. And he realized the resistance is so strong, we are never going to say yes to the mess unless we force ourselves. And maybe that is an effort of will. Maybe it's drawing a card at random from this mystical deck. Maybe it's a guilt trip from a German teenager. But whatever it takes all of us from time to time. If we want to be more creative, if we want to solve problems, we need to try and sit down and play the unplayable piano. Thanks very much for listening. All the way through that, Tim, I was feeling more and more anxious, more <laughs> folded armed, more kind of, we need some organisation in here. So I just, I just want to kick off, and I, I will sort of just think about a few things. Why is it that people are anxious about disruption and about mess and about random events? And I'm just trying to think about my own work. I work in television, broadcasting, and online. When I started in my job, it took me bloody ages because I didn't know anything. I wasn't creative. I was rubbish. Now I'm at least a little more efficient and I can do things at least more quickly, which is good for the organisation that I work for. Why does randomness make me almost shake with nerves? Uh, well, I, think I might just be weird, but no, no, I as a human trait, we don't... Order is very important to us. I think order is important to us because... Uh, I mean, I don't, want to, God, I don't want to open a bag of 
um, evolutionary psychology so early in the evening. <laughs> but you know all this stuff about, you know, is it a tiger or is it not a tiger? We're just um, being extremely alert to possible threats, I think, is highly adaptive. Um, however, in the, of course, in the modern world, most uh, unexpected or unusual situations are not, in fact, threats. They're just Brian Eno or some other non-fatal non thing. Um, but we still have that, that adrenaline response. Now, Eno says that's exactly what you want. Of course, it makes you feel anxious. But it's that alertness that is the friend of your creativity. Of course, I mean, if, you're in if you're completely in pieces, that's probably not helpful. But the extra energy from an unfamiliar situation uh, is something you, can, you plow into your creative work. Whereas if, you've, if you're feeling completely relaxed, you're, you're bored. And if you're bored, you're not going to be doing good work. You may do quick work. And, of course, some of what we do as economic journalists actually could be done by computers and shortly, <laughs> shortly will be done by computers. Uh, and then we're back to the question of, well, you can't outcompete the computer by being faster. You've got to outcompete the computer by say, saying something more interesting, and, and maybe that does involve a, a little bit more randomness. You actually touch on, uh, in your book, with a degree of perception, a certain Donald Trump, and, and why this book written uh, well before the actual presidential election, why Donald Trump might actually be bloody interesting and super successful. Now, given that he is now the president-elect, and as the BBC's economics editor, I have no opinions on that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what is it about Mr. Trump, president-elect, that um, is important for us to understand about his success? Well, I think there are lots of... Lots of things that are important for us to understand and lots of things we don't yet understand. But the point that I made in the book is that he used mess as a weapon very effectively. So uh, this, and this is not particularly unusual, particularly not for an underdog. It's hard to think of him as an underdog now because he's going to be the president. But he was a laughingstock a year and a half ago. He was going to beat Jeb Bush... Who's going to beat Marco Rubio? Absurd, ridiculous. So he was a real underdog. And what, one of the things that he did very effectively was to keep changing the conversation faster than the Bush and Rubio and, and Kasich and so on um, spin machines could respond. So Bush would go away and talk to his focus groups and figure out the perfectly triangulated response in a very traditional political way that's always been effective before. But Trump had mortally offended three or four other ethnic groups before Bush could figure out how to respond to the, to the first insult. Mm. And so he just left them looking incredibly ponderous. There is this famous incident where Rubio just started repeating himself on st just spurting out the same uh, chunks of text, uh, which uh, made the point really drove home. But that, that, just, that was fatal for Rubio because it underlined something that was already going on. Was they were perceived as speaking from a script in a robotic way Trump would just keep changing the conversation because he could. I can't. I but can't there was sort of something, wasn't there, about his disrupt the disruptive nature yep. of him was an important part of all those of, different of what was going on. Now he's not the only person to have done this. So I, I make comparisons with um, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. Yep. I think they're not friends. So Jeff Bezos <laughs> probably not not pleased with the comparison if he's noticed. But so the, but Bezos was again twenty years ago setting up Amazon quite explicitly 
with the, the vision that if I am too careful and too, uh, too slow because I try to get all the ducks in a row, Barnes & Noble will kill me. Mm. And, and However, if I move very, very quickly, um, yes, things will be chaotic and I will have knives sliding down the chutes in the Amazon warehouse and the, the sorting machine will be saying, is this knife a paperback or a hardback? And the, and the warehouses will be choking on Jigglypuff toys and, all, and, and we won't be set up and it'll be terribly, terribly confusing. We'll lose lots of money. But it may be chaotic to us, but it'll be more chaotic for Barnes & Noble. He did that. Erwin Rommel, the German tank commander, did that. And in each of these cases, if you had gone into one of the organizations, if you'd gone, if you'd been with uh, Rommel's uh, group in North Africa, with his, with his Panzer Army in North Africa, if you'd been in the middle of the Trump campaign, if you had been in an Amazon warehouse, all the Amazon ma management uh, team, you would have said, God, this is a mess. This is a disaster. Tell us about it. But... Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you had then gone and seen what they were doing to their opponents, you would have realized it's working because their opponents are even more confused and, and even more panicking and flailing around. Tell us about the Rommel example because you go into it in quite a lot of detail about how small, nimble, as you say, one step ahead and confusing to the enemy can be a very um, powerful way of organizing against what is usually Barnes & Noble the Clinton campaign machine, um, uh, the Allied forces, often larger and, on paper at least, heavier opponents. Yeah, and Rommel was definitely, a, like Trump, an underdog. Um, we didn't see him as an underdog after he'd kind of beaten up the, the British army uh, repeatedly, but he was an underdog. He repeatedly, uh, over the course of his career, both in the First World War and, the, and in the Second World War, would... Uh, see opportunities and move very, very quickly to grab opportunities, even though his troops weren't ready. So the idea was, this opportunity is going to go away. Um, we can't spare the time to get organised. We need to take the opportunity. And very often he would, by his rapid move movement, confuse the enemy, which creates another opportunity. So then he'd move again, and again, and again. And sometimes they'd be marching through the night, they'd be sleep-deprived, they'd be running out of fuel. This is his own troops... And yet the enemy might outnumber him five to one and yet be so bewildered that they surrendered. And, it, and it, there are so many different engagements at which Rommel was able to do this. So this was deciding that if I, if I spare the time to get myself organised, I give my opponent the time to get organised too. And that's fatal. I would rather deal with the mess. I would rather deal with the chaos. There is something about entrepreneurial spirit, is there, which needs an element of that mess of approach or is it something that has only helped certain people um uh is mark zuckerberg messy uh is it is it a necessary part of the dna of an entrepreneur or an inventor or the creator of great um products the notion of messiness disruption chaos i i wouldn't go that far although i i wouldn't be surprised but i can't prove it uh, the, the argument in the book, in, in general, by the way, is, is not that the chaotic approach or the messy approach is always the right approach. Structure often works very, very well. No, I mean, uh, the shipping container is a highly structured product. Globalisation runs off it. I'm really glad that all the plugs are the same size and have the same voltage. That's, ha that's helpful. There are lots and lots of ways in which structure helps us. Just the argument that I make in the book is we 
also apply structure in ways where it doesn't help us. And I suspect that in, for many entrepreneurs, trying to apply structure too early would, would be a mistake. And I suspect some of them try and realize it's a mistake. Some of them don't try at all. Uh, obviously, if you're uh, General Electric or IBM or Shell, you've got to have some kind of structure. And there, yes. are, there are countervailing advantages. There are. You talk a lot in the book about um, automation. Um, automation, artificial intelligence... Uh, the growth of data organising our world. I did come here on the tube. I came in on the central line. It wasn't too bad. I then could get my phone out, and it told me which way to walk from Lancaster Gate down through the park. Uh, even though some of the park was closed because it was dark, I could see another route, and I just walked down, and I knew exactly how long it would take me. Very, very organised. Um, <laughs> good. Uh, but is automation damaging our ability to be messy? What worries me about the automation is what happens when it fails. Um, I mean, whether automation damages our ability to, to be messy or not depends on the circumstance. In some cases, technology can help us be more messy. For example, Hollywood movies, comedies, they're all improvised now. Why are they improvised? Because it's much easier to film digitally and it's much easier to edit digitally. And so the technology lets you make more mess and still deliver a product that works for the audience, so you sort of take away the scaffolding in the end, where in the old days when you're filming uh, on, uh, on old-fashioned film and when editing is a lot more difficult, you have to do all your messy work with a script and then the actors aren't able to improvise. So technology can free us to improvise, um, but the, 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 the automation chapters in the book look at um, something called the paradox of automation. The paradox of automation is that it, it supports us and helps us make decisions and helps us be safer, uh, helps, helps us get to our destination more quickly. And then at the moment when the automation fails, because everything fails from time to time, that is the moment when we're in trouble. Because if you'd been in the middle of the park uh, and, and you didn't have a map, you hadn't looked at a map, you hadn't taken in what the surroundings were, were like you might have really been stuck at that point because you were trusting Google to get you there. Now, there's a, an example I give in the book. There are lots of hilarious GPS-gone-wrong stories in the book of people driving into the Pacific Ocean following their GPS and so on because, because they trust the computer. But there's a, there's a not terribly funny story in the book of um, three pilots crashing a perfectly good plane into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean and killing everybody on board. Uh, and it was because their, autom their automation failed in quite a subtle way. And they would, should still have been perfectly capable of flying the plane. And yet, because they didn't, they didn't fully understand, they'd really been de-skilled, they didn't understand the situation, they didn't understand how the automation had failed. And one error led to another. Um, so the paradox of automation is, the better the machines get, the safer the autopilot gets, the more bewildered we are in the very rare occasions that it does fail. You talk... Um one of the most interesting debates you've sparked is the notion of the messy desk and the obsession many businesses had for a long time. You, you tell a hilarious story about BHB Billiton's facilities management having long memos about how big the photo frame you could have on your desk with your family picture in it and where it had to stand and what you had to do. Yeah, and if, you, this, if yeah. you get a, a certificate of achievement, you can have that framed on your desk, yes. but only if you remove the family photo. So you're punished yes. <laughs> for getting your certificate of achievement by removing your family. Where did all that come from? Uh, I think it came from 
Uh, there have contr- always been control freaks, so there's that. But I think that more recently what we've seen is the spread of, um, of, kind of quality management techniques from the production line. So uh, Toyota and the 5S system, was it the 4S is, I, I lose track, and Six Sigma, that, uh, all these, the uh, General Electric advocate. And these are all tactics designed to, or, or approaches designed to, to produce very, very high reliability in precision engineering or in, say, an operating theatre. So, yeah, if you are making um, silicon chips or you are making cars or you are doing brain surgery, you want a very, very well-drilled team. You don't want any mess. You don't want any randomness. You want a checklist, and everything needs to work. And then what happens is, as I describe in other uh, fields of life, we take a perfectly good idea, and then we say, wouldn't it be great if this also governs the way that people organize their desks? For no reason. There is no reason. Uh, When you talk to these companies, they're like, well, you know, um, tidy desks are more professional. Are they? I know some very professional people with some very messy desks. um, Tidy desks um, present a cleaner image. So you're saying tidy desks look tidy. Okay, I agree. Why is that good? Um, Now, the, the, the research that really changed the way I view the universe was done by these two psychologists, Alex Haslam and Craig Knight, Uh, and they got people to do office tasks in an artificial office. So they'd come in and, you know, they'd be do email, do some crosswords or whatever, do some stuff, file these papers. There were four different... It was a randomised trial, four different branches to the trial. So in one branch, the office is super minimalist. People, that was fine, it wasn't great. Second branch, the office is what they called enriched. There's a pot plant, there are nice kind of... Giorgio O'Keefe-esque pictures on the wall. It's, not, it's fine. Uh, people quite like that. So enriched was better than, than minimal. But this was what was really interesting. didn't really matter how the office looked. What mattered was who had control. So in the third treatment of this uh, randomised trial, they, they call it the empowered condition. So in the empowered condition, you get your Giorgio O'Keefe-ish posters, you get your pot plants, and they're like, well, where do you want to put them? Put them anywhere you like, or if you want, want to take them away, we'll take them away. Fine. People loved it. They did incredibly well. They were very happy. They, they got more crosswords done. They did more tasks. Then the fourth condition was called the disempowered condition. Evil genius. So in the disempowered condition, what happens is you tell people, here's the pot plant, here are the paintings, do what you like, set them all up. So people would do all that. They're just ready to sit down and do some work. And then the experimenter would come in and say, oh, I'm sorry, uh, this is not appropriate for the experiment. And we then rearrange them and put them back how they were in the enriched treatment. Now, remember, in the enriched treatment, people were perfectly happy. But in the disempowered treatment, which is physically identical, people, they hated it. And they hated it from every possible angle. They hated the company. They hated the office. They hated the task. They really hated the experimenter. And I realized it's not about, you know, some people have tidy desks. Some people have messy desks. That's fine, whatever suits. But the idea that in a regular office environment, not a production line, not, a, not an operating theatre, but in a regular office environment, a manager will come in and say, put that away, you're only allowed one of those paintings, you can't do that, you put the, this is violating company policy. That is causing the most profound resentment. For what? To give the manager a sense of control. If you're thinking about how offices are designed now, we have had this obsession, well, firstly, there was the tidy desk obsession, 
And then, then, then there's this notion that um, much, uh, much commenting on in that hilarious comedy W1A about the BBC that no one actually has a desk and you just walk around with a laptop and sit wherever on a sort of soft sofa somewhere and it all looks lovely and gorgeous. In terms of the psychology of an office, is that the wrong approach to take? I think the... Uh, it's I quite messy, I but it's disempowering. It, it's highly disempowering and it's, there's, a, there's a real focus there on things looking cool. So again, it's a, it's a sort of a... It's a surface over substance thing, and people don't have the sense of control. So what, what I think people actually need is the ability to create an, an oasis where they can operate without interruptions, mm. and they also need a place where they can collaborate. <laughs> of course, it depends exactly on, on, the, um, on the kind of task, depends on the team. Where's the best place you've been in? Uh, it, to me, control is very important. And so <laughs> what, um, what I like is the fact that I, I personally, right now, I'm very, very lucky because I can go and work at the FT, I can go and work at the BBC, I can go and work in Starbucks. Well, I would never do that because the coffee is disgusting. I can go and work in the Bodleian Library because I live in Oxford and I have a library pass. So I can work in any library in Oxford. It's absolutely amazing privilege. Now, what I find is that sometimes I want to be in a cafe Sometimes I want to be in a library. Sometimes I need a fast internet connection. Sometimes it, the internet is not my friend. The internet is what is preventing me from getting any work done. I can choose any of these things, and it's, and it's down to me. And I realize not everybody... I realize I'm enormously lucky in that yeah. respect. But I think we can... A, a lot of offices could nudge a little bit more in that direction of giving people a little bit more freedom and a little bit more control over their environment. And yet, actually, what we do is we see, we see the, the exact opposite. You know, we, we try to inflict environments on people in the name of efficiency and often um, tax deductibility. The cubicle, by the way, um, very space efficient but also tax deductible because it's furniture rather than uh, uh, architecture uh, and therefore it's tax advantaged. So this was one of the reasons why the cubicle sprang to life. You talk about um, the notion of the chance encounter, what is the best way to... to for serendipity to flourish in organisations, what's the best way to, um, to meet new people and hear new ideas? If, before I go to the audience um, after this, this will be my last uh, question. If I were, by chance, looking for a girlfriend, what would be the best way for me to do that? So, um... And I will be coming to the audience with this question. Just... It, sometimes, you know, it, it's important to seize the opportunity and to improvise. So I would just like to ask... <laughs> if Kamal was looking for a girlfriend, anybody free for a drink later? Anyone? <laughs> Gentleman there. Yep. You've got to be flexible in these, this life. <laughs> but tell me, Tim. <laughs> Seriously... No, not how I'd get a girlfriend, but how would... It's the notion of people again, your notion of the, um, the murder mystery. Yeah. People didn't... felt uncomfortable with the stranger. And there are huge advantages with working with a group of people that you feel understand you. You maybe don't want to be friends, but you want to have a sort of... a focused purpose, maybe, in yeah. what you're doing. Um, why is it that, again, to, to sort of go full circle do we find that notion of pushing ourselves out to meet random people 
You've got the great example in your book of people going to networking events and speaking yeah. to people they know yes. at a networking event. Yes. Having, having, ex <laughs> having explicitly said... There the, yeah, to I'm, meet new people. I'm here to meet new people. But they all, the, yes, the, the researchers put these little uh, tracking tags on them, and so they were able to see who talked to whom. And uh, they, it, it's one of the best titles ever. Um, uh, it, it, the title of the uh, research paper is Do People Mix at Mixers? No. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so there's something in our nature, again, just to finish off on that, there is something yeah. in our nature, familiarity order possibly yeah. out of that is very important and i and i feel this very strongly this is the the advice that i give people in the book that i personally find hardest to take because i'm very shy and i don't like to meet new people and yet i know that if i can actually reach out and connect with somebody new and have a conversation with someone new and really and it's not a superficial conversation but you really feel that you're getting to know another human being and there's a meeting of minds that's the most thrilling experience in the world and yet i find it incredibly difficult to do that so it's so it's tough um on the subject of the girlfriend, the, what I found interesting in recent years is the way that we have put our trust in computer algorithms mm. to find us a match. And this, this I find absolutely bizarre. Internet dating itself makes perfect sense. Obviously, you can, you can meet people online, nothing wrong with that. But the, the promise of internet dating, and this, right back to the very early days, I write about the very first internet date, well, not even internet dating, the very first computerized dating at, at Harvard in the 1960s. They were saying, oh, the computer will find the perfect person for you. Actually, all they were doing was matching for sort code. So this is somebody, who, uh, for zip code, this is somebody who, um, who lives near you, put them together. And it worked brilliantly, but the reason it worked brilliantly is because people would show up for the date and they would go, oh, I wonder what... I wonder why the computer matched us. And they would spend the whole date <laughs> trying to figure out what they had in common. It was actually fantastic. There's a, there's a more recent study by OKCupid where they told people they were incredibly good matches, but actually they were incredibly bad matches, according to OKCupid's algorithm. It made absolutely no difference. <laughs> and the reason is obvious when you think about it. Think about all of the things. Picture your perfect girlfriend, Kamal. All of the things you want well, to... Well, he's your... over there. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> this could be your lucky night, sir. <laughs> You picture, you picture this person in your mind and you, all the things that you want and then you think about all the things that you could actually write down and, and check off a computer. So, you know, things like hobbies, languages, uh, you know, interested in economics. Gender. That kind of thing. <laughs> gender. gender. Gender is one thing that at least some people will, will allow to be sort of uh, pinned down by a computer. But in, in most cases, what you actually want cannot be quantified. It can't be passed by a computer and yet somehow we, we want to believe that the computer can do it. Uh, so it's just one of those cases where actually we need to let go, we need to expose ourselves to new experiences. Uh, you've done that tonight, Kamal, so well done, and you, you never know, this could be... Could be my lucky could night. The, could be the beginning of something beautiful. OK, uh, let's have some questions, and you, sir, are going to ask the first one, <laughs> this man down here, my new, my new life partner. It's lovely that you're, you can all come to our... Um, well, it won't be a wedding, it'll be a sort of... What would it be? I don't know, it'll be something lovely. So he's going to ask the first question over there. Fabulous. And then uh, there's a gentleman here. Lovely. Yes. The real answer is... I need is to know your name, obviously. I'm, I'm David. <laughs> Hello, David. <laughs> um, if you had come out for a drink with me afterwards, I would have helped you find your life partner. Oh, right. Your girlfriend. <laughs> and that was the bit of chaos that you should have seized on. <laughs> well, I haven't, I haven't not seized it yet. <laughs> Tim, do, do you think it's... With, with these messy people that you're looking at, do you think it, you've got the... I mean... What would you say to say that you've got the cause and effect the right way around? Maybe the type of people who become messy are just 
naturally successful rather than they're successful because they're messy? Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right to raise the question. I actually don't, in the book, I don't make the argument, which a lot of people... A lot of people do say, you see it online, there are lots of articles online that say, oh, messy people are more creative. I actually don't ever make the argument that messy people are more creative. I don't have any proof that messy people are more creative. What I do make the argument, and I made it in my opening remarks, is that messy situations can provoke anybody to be more creative, or not even necessarily more creative. If you find you know, a better route to commute... An act of creativity, well, maybe it is, but actually I just think of it as problem-solving. So there are some very, very creative and very, very messy people. Agatha Christie's a wonderful example. Um, she just used to randomly shuffle her notebooks and they'd have these plot ideas and then it'd be like, buy salt, buy pepper, buy toilet paper, maybe killed with arsenic. Um, so she was utterly chaotic, but I, it, that's not an argument that I make and I'm not sure the data would, would back me up. So it's not that messy people are creative people. It's that messy situations can provoke any of us to, uh, to solve problems and to, to find creative solutions. Uh, yeah, there's a, a gentleman here and a gentleman there and then a woman in front. Great. Um, yeah, you, you may have sort of gone in this direction already, but uh, I was interested to see what your thoughts were about um, uh, how messy meets what some would say is a, an over-regulated world. Uh, because it's okay in an office to have a slightly OCD situation potentially but if it's a whole trading block or something like that is that have you got any thoughts about that side of regulation so i I talk in the book about a a couple of different types of regulation i talk about um vehicle emission standards and i talk about uh banking uh, capital regulation and what i argue is that the regulators fell into the trap of a, a very very nice tidy long checklist if you can meet all of these requirements then we'll pass you, uh, you know, fit to drive your car or fit to, uh, fit to be a bank. Um, but unfortunately, these checklists don't actually catch wrongdoing. Uh, they don't make banks safe because they're, they're always able to be gamed. Uh, Andy Haldane, chief economist of the Bank of England, a few years ago really dropped, dropped a, a bomb in the middle of a central bankers' conference at Jackson Hole when he demonstrated that a very, very crude rule of thumb was far, far better than this incredibly tidy nitpicking checklist at identifying which banks had got into trouble during the financial crisis. And he told me, um, I wasn't quite as excited about interviewing Andy as I was about interviewing uh, Brian Eno, but I was still excited to interview him because he's a very interesting thinker. He said, I, I would rather have a, a SWAT team of regulators randomly showing up at banks and asking weird questions than an army of box tickers. But unfortunately, the regulatory regime is moving far more towards the army of box tickers and away from the SWAT team. And we saw this with, with vehicle emissions, where you had incredibly rigorous, tight, tight regulations on vehicle emissions, but sadly they were incredibly predictable, and so the, the automakers just cheated. And if they'd been a little bit slacker, but also random, so we're not going to tell you exactly how we're going to test the car or exactly what conditions under which we're going to test the car, they would have there's no way VW would have been able to get away with what they did. Uh, yeah, madam there. It seems that a lot of active thought goes into being messy. And I just wonder whether you thought by being fully aware of your messiness, you actually create more positive effects than if you just randomly happen to be quite a messy person in your approach. I think it does help to be mindful. And I have, in what is a year that has been full of disruption, it has been helpful from time to time to be able to go, 
Well, Brexit seems like the unplayable piano to me, but you never know. We might get a beautiful tune out of it. Um, and just to, to be not, a, not, not constantly um, blindly optimistic, because sometimes a disaster is just a disaster, um, but to be... <laughs> I mean, I sort of... I, re- I really felt this... I was in Washington three days after Donald Trump was elected, and talking about Messi. And it's one thing to say, well, you know, look for the opportunities and, you know, this, you never know something. But if you're dealing with people um, who are not white and not male and are in tears in a public space because they feel so threatened by what has happened, you can't just go, hey, look on the bright side, this could be the unplayable piano. You know, sometimes things are just bad. And I, I, I need to, we need to acknowledge that. Um, but, yeah, to, to be constantly t- telling yourself... Okay, calm down, pay attention, there might be something interesting here. I think is a skill worth developing. Um, David Bowie apparently had this uncanny knack of being able to put to one side something that was nearly perfect and nearly finished because some interesting mistake had just happened. And to be able to say, that is what we should be paying attention to because that is far more interesting than this nearly finished piece of music, which we can always come back to. And, and Eno said that was extremely rare and extremely brave, but that's one of the things that made Bowie the great artist that he was. Sir, at the back there, yeah. Uh, hi. So um, you mentioned earlier that it was more about messy situations than it was about messy minds. Um, some of the most famous disruptors in the world um, are the opposite of messy minds. People like Steve Jobs and uh, Ron McLaren or Dyson when they're obsessed with doing things in a particular way. Do you think there's a multiplier effect? So a mind like that in a messy situation makes them more successful. As Bowie as well, he was an obsessive. So I, I, have a, I haven't seen one photograph of Steve Jobs' office. It was pretty messy, I have to say. So we, we always need to be careful. Yes, he, he liked beautiful objects and he didn't like... Uh, you know, un- untidy detailing on Apple's products, but that didn't mean that his working process was necessarily incredibly organised and tidy. Um, well, jobs, I think, there's an interesting story about Jobs that I tell in the book about his attempt, this comes back to what you were saying, Kamal, about organising offices, his attempt to design the Pixar offices. So he was a majority shareholder in Pixar, the film studio that created Toy Story and Finding Nemo and all these great films. And so Jobs really wanted a hand in how this office worked. And he came up with this idea that all the toilets in this building were going to be centrally located in the lobby. Well, just just off the lobby, obviously. Um, <laughs> but you were going to have, you were going to have these, these, this pair of, of huge kind of um, toilets and... Basically, what would happen is the shared human need to urinate would bring Pixar's employees down to the lobby and they'd kind of mingle with each other and meet, meet people and it'd be great. After washing their hands, hopefully. After washing their hands, always wash your hands. Um, so what was interesting, though, is he had this idea and he felt it very strongly because he thought serendipity is incredibly important. Uh, and he's right, of course. And then there was this rebellion in Pixar led by, any guesses? Pregnant women. Of course, because they don't, they don't see the serendipity so much as they see it's a 15-minute walk to the toilet and will therefore basically be walking to and from the toilet the entire day. 
So they protested, and there was this big staff meeting, and, and Jobs, of course, got this reputation as being a control freak. The control freak's control freak. He did something remarkable. He backed down. He said, okay, I, un- I understand. You're the people who work here. It's not my office. It's my project, but it's not my office. And so he backed down, and he said, I will find some other way to foster serendipity in Pixar. And apparently, if you visit the Pixar offices... They are this absolute riot of creativity. So one of the desks is like a Disney princess castle, and another one is a jungle, and another one is a cave, and they're all sort of carved out of polystyrene and lovingly painted. And they've even commandeered air conditioning vents and turned them into secret passages into hidden cocktail lounges. And um, it's, it's an absolute mess. And, of course, it's a wonderfully creative place. And Jobs... I think, to his enormous credit, saw that at a certain point he had to let go. Sir, thank you very, very much. Quickly. You make a very powerful argument that random, unanticipated events help the creativity of the individual. And I was wondering how that translates to a team, because the sports teams that are successful do their very best to actually refine and get rid of all the, the, the variables that are unpredicted. And as I was, I was thinking as you spoke, you know, how, how many random, unanticipated events... Uh, would say a team of politicians trying to run a country find helpful. Yeah, brilliant. Just Tim, just hang on to that thought. Uh, gentleman there. Hi, um, I'm a state school teacher. I spend most of my day, too much of my day, drilling students um, with model responses for questions they mostly know in advance. Um, I'm intrigued by the notion of having a random GCSE and whether you think there'd be any value in just a, a question on stuff. In terms of education, um, I think my, my sense is that... A lot of people in education, particularly a lot of teachers, are frustrated that the, situa- that the system is over-organised. And we, we see that it's over-structured. There's a lot of testing. And when you start testing, you need standardised questions and you need a syllabus and, because otherwise it doesn't work. And yet we kind of know that it, this doesn't necessarily help prepare our students for the wider world. And there's this tension between trying to test people and evaluate them and we evaluate the schools and the teachers and the education system and the students all using the same system, which makes no sense. Um, and we'd, we'd benefit from more randomness, but I don't know e- how easy it is to get in there. We can all do that a little bit, whether we're teachers, whether we're parents, whatever we are. Um, just observe uh, a, an informal game of football versus a formal game of football. You think a formal game of football, that's more structured. You're going to learn more about football. Um, you've got a referee, you've got the pitch, you've got, you've got the tactics, and yeah, you'll n- learn more about football, but you won't learn more about life. Because in an informal game of street football, you've got kids of all ages having to get along with each other. They come, they go, they all have to be happy because the grown-ups won't force them to keep playing till the 90 minutes are up. So you've got to keep, the t- you've got to keep everyone happy, you've got to keep everybody in roughly equal sides, they have to referee themselves, they have to learn all kinds of skills. They may not be great footballers, but they'll be better human beings as a result. So sometimes letting go of the structure can really help. Um, Teamwork, there is a chapter in the book about teams and about different team structures and and what they do, and including the the structures of teams that made the greatest computer games in history, which is a wonderful work done by some uh, mathematically-minded sociologists. Um, What I would say about sports teams, yes, they are often very, very tidy and very highly controlling. And I talk about a wonderful um, British rowing eight that is the absolute opposite of Messi and were incredibly successful. 
But I don't think that that is, contrary to what many motivational speakers will tell you, I don't think that's necessarily a good preparation for life. We think about um, Dave Brailsford. You mentioned Dave Brailsford at um, Team Sky and, and British Cycling. They, they're going for this incremental improvements. They go for these marginal gains. It's very powerful. I often talk about it. I often advocate it. But we have to understand the nature of the system they're operating in. There was a wonderful Scottish cyclist a few years ago called Graham Obrey. He would build his, wash, his, um, uh, his bikes out of tumble dryers and washing machines with all kinds of uh, weird and wonderful uh, posi cycling positions. And he, he kept winning competitions and breaking records. And World Cycling Federation kept coming along and saying, no, you can't do that. said, outlaw his bike. So build a new bike. And he'd win something and say, no, you can't do that. And he'd build a new and yet another bike. And they'd say, you can't do that. So Graham Obrey was exploring in a highly innovative way all the different ways you could do cycling, uh, and he kept being shut down. So that's why the marginal improvements approach works so incredibly well, because fundamentally it's a very tidy, constrained situation. There are many tidy, constrained situations in the world, and a tidy, constrained approach can be very powerful. I, you know, I like spreadsheets. I like, I like a clean kitchen surface. Uh, I'm a big fan of the shipping container. Uh, structure can work. Tidiness can work, but sometimes it's a little bit too tempting. Sometimes we need to let go. We need to adopt that jazzier, more improvised spirit. Because in a lot of the problems that are most important to us, that involve most innovation, that involve most human contact, that make us most human, mess is fundamental. And it may make us anxious. I know it's made Kamal extremely anxious. But we nevertheless need to embrace it. Thank you very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>